All right. So in in 1967, the Beatles released the song "All You Need Is Love," and it sounded a note of the time that resonates with most people still, even about the importance of love. And yet, here's the thing: if you pay close attention to the words, the actual words. This song's description of love is rather vacuous, full of fairly sappy rhetoric that really doesn't have a grip on reality. In his book about the Beatles, called "Revolution in the Head," Ian McDonald <laughs> described this song as one of the Beatles' least deserving hits, being far too self-indulgent. Now, the thing about that is that vapid and contentless approach to love, however, seems to remain as the reigning mindset in our age. The dominant view is that love is everybody doing whatever they want, and we celebrate whatever that means. As untenable and as nondescript as that is. The difference between "love is love" and "all you need is love" is a chorus riff made catchy by the brass section. Love has been made the note that media and culture sounds on every beat, and yet without any meaningful notion behind love. And this view of love seems to be not merely tolerance of everyone's chosen way of life, but celebration of it, even when we think it's wrong. More specifically, the modern view of love excludes the notion of wrong. Modern love means setting aside any notion that someone may have committed a wrong, promoting the same narcissistic self-indulgence that commentators have said fueled the Beatles. All you need is love. So, Christians have to ask themselves: How? Do we reckon with the cultural call for indiscriminate love? Since we are foremost of all people committed to love, since God Himself is love, how do we affirm the indispensable nature of love in all things without giving up right and wrong, personal accountability, and the Christian outlook of how God meant the world to be? Paul's description of love in First Corinthians thirteen is famous, even if simply for its common appearance being read at weddings, is it not? And yet his outline of love is often demoted, diluted to the same vacuous status as cultural notions of love. Certainly, Paul's notion of love is beautiful, and his language is moving. And there's no. We should celebrate, not downplay, that. And yet, as Christians, we cannot pretend that love is some abstract energy flowing through the universe, disconnected from people exercising love for one another. Love is not like gravity. Love is not centrifugal force. People exercise. Love. Only the triune God is capable of being love, because only the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit has subjects and objects 
of love inherently subsisting in his essence for eternity. Likewise, love cannot sit on a shelf as if it is a, a thing. People love. And so it has no independent existence from people exercising love. So how do we love? How do we reclaim love to its proper place and definition? Well, we pay attention to what Paul has said about what love is and how to do it. So our main point tonight is very simple. It's very simple. Christian love is specific. Christian love is specific. Now we're going to start, our first point to consider this is a divided context. A divided context. Because in order to avoid the same mistakes of appropriating this passage for our own purposes without understanding why God revealed it, we need to attend what's going on in this situation. Why would Paul write this beautiful chapter about love? So throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul has been addressing, we know well by this point, right, divisions in the church, disagreements. His his pastoral project throughout this entire letter is to repair those divisions by providing a proper gospel-driven understanding of doctrine of the Christian life and the church. In chapters 12 to 14, where we are, Paul's tackling the issue of using spiritual gifts in worship. In the second half of chapter 11, he took on the Lord's Supper as the first issue he addressed concerning public worship. And now he's pushing through a complicated issue of how Christians should use gifts in the right way, particularly concerning how we think about what they're meant to do for each other and particularly in reference to worship, worship services. And so in chapter 12, his main premise was that spiritual gifts are not for your personal benefit, and especially not for any experiential value that they might bring you. God has gifted you so that you would be a gift to your fellow church members. God has enabled you, he has blessed you with a gift so that you might be a blessing. Now the, the issue here, which is very clear as we, as we looked at the context there last time we were in this chapter, the, and, and even in what we read, the issue was that some were ranking the spiritual gifts in order to promote their own prestige. I have a better gift, so I should be higher in the pecking order of the church. And this was causing, as is expected, more divisions in the Corinthian congregation as people competed for notoriety by using their spiritual gifts to get attention. But that's exactly the wrong way to think about spiritual gifts. God does not give you a talent for your own prestige, nor for personal experience, nor to put the spotlight on you at all. So there... There is simply a way to think about gifts that we need to make sure that we adopt. And that sets the stage 
running into chapter 13, how can I contribute to the common good of my church? How can I help my fellow believers? How can I serve? If I were thinking about, if I were, if any of us are thinking about how we can get noticed or how we can become more personally appreciated, then we are thinking about using something other than the gifts that God has given us for use in the church. We, we've switched gears into a different issue if we're thinking about ourselves rather than the common good. So spiritual gifts like love, well, they don't exist abstractly either. People exercise spiritual gifts. And so the diversity of gifts used by the people gathered in God's church compose a well-functioning body of Christ. We are not all good at the same things, and that's wonderful. We have different talents. Those talents combine to contribute to the to a good community of people helping and loving each other. And so the context for Paul's discussion of love remains that same issue about having the right mindset about how to use our spiritual gifts, namely in public worship. So that's that's our context. That's it's the context of division. And Paul trying to, to bring this congregation back together. And so he talks about love. That brings us to our second point then. And we want to think about a specific content. This is love has a specific content. I mean, there's an obvious question, isn't there? Here, I think because, because this chapter is, is in some ways well known, people have heard it, people have seen it read. What? It's interesting, isn't it, that it comes here? Of all places. What, why does this beautiful chapter on love come in the midst of explaining gifts concerning worship services? That's an interesting placement, isn't it? If, if we, stay in that register of of classic songs, we might ask, what's love got to do with it? If we're looking at this chapter put here. And the answer is, well, really everything. This chapter fits in the context of how to act toward and think about other people. Other people in the church. In chapter 12, verse 31, Paul wrote, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. I think his point, as he commends the higher gifts, as he put it, is not to rank the gifts that he's just mentioned, which would sort of undermine the point he's just made, but to point ahead to the gifts of this more excellent way that he's about to explain, namely the gifts of loving each other. So, love, namely the, the biblical understanding of love, is the more excellent way of interacting as the community of faith. Looking not to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul leads us into this understanding of, of love by starting, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels... 
but I have not love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And this is the point where we began, isn't it? We started with an empty, vacuous notion of love. And Paul, here in this spot, is not referring to the gift of tongues, as if he means to speak in the angel's supposedly heavenly language. Rather, he's talking about, he wants to highlight how it does not matter how eloquent or beautiful his words may be if they are not backed up by genuine love. Well, then they're empty. Well, the Beatles, all you need is love, may say some nice sounding things, but gets us nowhere. But does, what does it mean that when they say to us, right, what does it mean there's nothing you can do that can't be done? I've thought about that this week. And I can't give you an answer. And yet our culture has no deeper understanding of love than that. And so Paul wrote here in verses 1 to 3, no matter what gift you have, no matter what talents you have, or contribution you make, if you don't exercise it with love, it's meaningless. It's empty. It's like banging a cymbal with no beat, no tune. It's just noise. And so what is love? Paul describes it for us in verses 4 to 8. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That's a spellbinding outline of love, no doubt. It's hard not to be moved by Paul's words and hard not to long for the experience of this kind of love. And I want us to grab again, though, that love is not a force out there, but something that people do. And here we have our guide, how to practice true, concrete love. Verses 4 to 8 outline the things we do. As we love. And here's the trouble. As we think about that list and as we think about it not as something that accidentally rolls out of some empty force out there, but as something that describes how we are to love. Well, here's the trouble. These things take a lot of effort, don't they? They don't just roll out of us. And that really grounds this exhortation, this exposition of love in exactly what he's taking on, doesn't it? As he addressed a church split by division 
and disagreement? Well, he says love is patient. You don't like what that other believer said the church should do? Okay. But love is still patient. You you didn't get public attention that would make you feel good. But someone else did. Well, love doesn't envy, does it? Be glad for them. Maybe you did get the public attention. But love doesn't boast. So don't flaunt it. But make sure you've used that opportunity to benefit others. You aren't better. You received an opportunity, a chance to help in a particular way. Because the gifts aren't about us, are they? They're about the common good. And so, in in a situation with disagreement and division, love isn't arrogant, rude, insistent, irritable, or resentful. If I can continue beating up the Beatles, it seems like they're completely wrong when they said, it's easy. Not so much for sinners. The ways love manifests itself indeed takes a lot of effort. It requires us to be not lax and open, but devoted and focused. The culture has inverted the function of love, especially in how quickly the media's golden children of whatever issue can get instantly canceled. That's not love. Paul says, when we disagree as Christians, as we live in the body of Christ, we don't cancel, but we embrace. Even in church discipline, we are after correction and restoration when there is not moral violation we are then in that case after flexibility to move toward the mark together because that's what love does love then has a specific content and that brings us to our final point a growing love a growing love and I just want to focus on on what this summons to love looks like uh, as we live in the church. And so we turn to verses 8 to 12. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man... I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully. 
even as I have been known fully. So the first point just to note there is that love is the one enduring facet of Christian existence. As much as right here, as much as I would love to appeal to Paul's statement that prophecy and tongues cease to show how miraculous gifts have ceased today, that's not Paul's point in this passage. Rather, now we live in an age of imperfection, but in in the age of perfection, heaven and the new creation, in that day and time and place, we won't need the help of any gifts. And despite that, how those things, the gifts will pass and fade away, and yet love, love will remain between God and His people and between His people amongst each other even more intensely in that age than in this one where the church needs gifts to grow. But as we push ahead, we see that this grand view of love is connected to the analogy of growing up. Our understanding of God's love will be like a mature outlook on life when we enter glory. But what does is, what is growing up have to do with love? While we are children, while we are children, don't we have to focus on growing well? For all of us, we remain children at various stages of learning in regard to loving each other. And so we come back to our need to put focus into these attributes of love. They don't happen by accident. None of them. Kids don't learn to ride a bike by accident. No one wakes up in the morning one day just knowing their multiplication tables. Most of us have to learn to tie our shoes at some point. It takes work to grow up well. And so it is with love. You will be annoyed by people in the church. Just the way it is. We stay patient. And we stay not irritated. And we stay not resentful. It may help At times, as humbling as it may be, it may help us to remember that as often as you are annoyed by others, you may be annoying others. Which keeps us in perspective, doesn't it? But we learn to accept love even in our own imperfections and strive to give love even where others people's imperfections shine. There's a simple thing, um, I think, to help us here as we think about how do, we, how do we put that into action. And I just think at the end of the day, Christians gain a lot of ground in loving each other if we just don't expect too much. Now, by that, I don't mean, I do not mean let yourself be a doormat. 
I do mean that people are often just unaware of what we need from each other. And it's not helpful to expect other people to read our minds. We often don't know that there is a need and are often unaware of a way to help. We get irritated when people do not already know what we need or what we want. But we don't believe in psychics in the church, do we? I hope you don't. So let's love one another by simply being clear with each other. Don't wait until someone has failed you and then criticize them. Tell them what you need in advance. If it wasn't exactly right, again, try not to criticize them, but let them know in a loving way what will be more helpful next time going forward. Church is kind of like running the tube, isn't it? Like you, you have to have good angles. You have to have balance. And there's bumps and there's waves. And you've got to hang on and stand steady for the course. And in that way, right, love has content. And encouragement, encouragement will always produce more growth and more change than criticism. It's easier to criticize. It's maybe more fun to criticize, whether it should be or not. But encouragement will always produce more change and growth than criticism. Such is the way of love. Still, love is not all we need, since there are three things that every Christian needs. Verse 13. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. At the end of the day, we will love people well only if we have faith in Jesus. Faith faith receives Christ as our Savior because we so often fail. As He first loves us, so... We learn how to love from Him. We must have faith because trusting in Jesus is the only way to enter God's everlasting loving presence in His kingdom. Here's the thing. Right? So there's, we need to be reminded of the forgiveness we have in Christ as we take hold of our Savior by faith. And we're renewed in this life by faith. And yet, believer, the surprising thing, isn't it, is that you won't need faith forever. One day, Christ will be directly before you. And you will have Him not by faith, but by sight. We will not need hope forever because one day hope of future blessing will fade into present possession 
of God's everlasting blessings. But love is forever. Always, always we will know God's care. We will know fully, even as we have been known fully. And in everlasting life, love will never end. Let's pray. Father God, we have a challenge and an assurance before us. There's a challenge for how to love well. And we pray that you would enable us to take on that challenge with excitement and vigor and spirit-empowered faith and strength. And we pray that we will do so as we bask in the assurance that for those you have foreknown, those whom you have given your love from eternity, those you have guaranteed will be in your presence forever, knowing your grace and mercy knowing the depths of your inexhaustible love. We pray that this would fuel our lives, would excite our hearts, would give us strength when we are weak, give us peace when we are unsettled, give us energy when we are low. We pray, God, that you would be close to us in these ways. Remind us that this is an unshakable promise because you've guaranteed it to us in Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen.